Thank you guys for tuning in to the very first episode of the TTE podcast. I'm your host, D Tubbs, and today I thought we would take this opportunity to sort of recap uh, what went on in the 2020 presidential election. And I, I chose two very special people to sort of recap what the, what we saw over the last week and a half or so. Um, and those two people are two of the biggest political junkies that I know. Um, and that would be my brother and sister, Brian and Denise. And, um, just to level set a little bit, we grew up in a, in a family that taught current events and politics and followed the news, uh, quite a bit, whether it was our parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, older cousins. So I think because of the experiences we've had in life, uh, because of the, um, level of education that we've all pursued, um, and just different experiences in life. I think these two people have a very unique perspective on what it is that we just saw, um, what it all means and where we might go from here. Um, so with that, uh, the first thing I kind of want to talk about really is just to get your overall reaction, uh, to the election in general. So Denise, I'll start with you. What was your overall reaction relative to, um, what we saw, not just Tuesday and Tuesday night, but, all the way up through Saturday and even all of last week. Sort of what was your take on He's a sore loser and I hate it. You hate it. And he lost. You hate him? Just to be that too. That too. Uh, he's a sore loser. He lost. Um, I retweeted out some, some, what somebody said earlier today that said for the fourth time this week, Joe Biden won the presidency. Cause that's how I feel. For <laughs> the fourth time this week, he's won the presidency because that's that's exactly that pretty much that tweet is is my life. Like, I feel like they're gonna you lost have to retweet that every single day of Joe Biden <laughs> because there's just going to be people out there that won't accept uh, the reality that he won. You know what? God bless those people. You know, if you have those kind of people put that much focus into say oh i don't know educating our children or defeating a global pandemic i mean we could just be on top well it's still america so you still got the right to sort of live your life the way you want to and i think that's really what you're seeing is that exercise and that um idea of being an individual and individual freedom i think is what you're really seeing yeah but i mean when your life infringes upon my life that's a problem yeah and i could see that brian what was your take on the on the last week and a half two weeks uh well uh election night i was a little discouraged um but as the day went as the days went on um but my thing was uh, I, I saw like a powerpoint or something that the um, Biden campaign did and talked about how they were winning and how they were optimistic about these particular states. And then during Wednesday, when they called um, Wisconsin and Michigan for him, then I was like, OK, he's got it in the bag. So now it's just a matter of not if, but when. Um, and so to your point, Denise, yes, I think that um, Trump is acting like a sore loser. Um, I do think that in America, 
we have these things called elections and <laughs> you know it's kind of a zero sum game so one side one person wins one side wins another side loses and so you know you live to fight another day so why he can't or i think we probably know why he can't but um but that's the name of the game you win some you lose some you fight another day so um if i were him I would go ahead and just move on with it because now you can, I think he's going to do, was it Trump TV? Then also I get to, I would get to plan in this presidential library. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Across, you and you know, you got to hold that L, but you know, you got other things on the horizon here that you could be focusing on. So, you know, it's time for you to move to the side and these other folks come in and you know, let's, you know, keep it moving. Man, his presidential library is going to be in like Mar-a-Lago, Florida or some shit. But but that brings up an interesting thought. Um, how exactly can you move on if you are still asking for recounts and fighting the election in court with litigation? How exactly do you move on? Because those two things would appear to be in direct conflict with each other. Well, I think that the, one thing is, is that my understanding is that he's telling people that he's going to run in 2024. So if you're telling me you're going to run in 2024, then you're telling me on some level you have accepted the fact that you have lost. Right. Because if you don't think all this, all this hubbub about a 20 or excuse me, a second Trump term in 2020, that can't happen if you're going to run in 2024. So you have intellectually, except for the fact that you have lost. Right. So this whole dance that everyone's doing about, well, if he does this and he does that and the litigations, everything like he hasn't won one yet. I don't think unless I'm mistaken. So since he hasn't won one yet, like what are we talking about here? And I don't know if you guys caught Bill Maher last night with the, with the attorney from the uh, uh, Trump campaign. I saw a clip of it. And he oh, was I, just. I have not seen that, so I'll oh, really check it out. Uh, as they say in Parks and Rec, treat yourself to that <laughs> interview because he tells her from the jump, he's like, I hope we can have like a real. He's like, I understand your job is tough and the position that you hold is not ideal, but I hope we can have a conversation here that's like based in fact and it's not just like talking points. And it was basically her saying a bunch of talking points. Um, about different things. And he was just like, listen, man, like enough. Like you guys haven't won in court yet. Like why do you keep doing all this? Like, and you know, they went back to the top, the, the line of we want every legal vote to count, but not the illegal votes. And he was like, yeah, let's call an election. Like that's what, what happened. So, um, but, but you know. not to cut you off, but I think this is an important point. If you are going to accuse in court and bring litigation that says that millions of illegal ballots were cast, then you're the plaintiff. So it's for you to prove and bring evidence yep. that actually exists, and they can't prove But that's law 101. That's law 101. But see, I think that's the thing. I think that... We as Americans have gotten so wrapped up in our own day-to-day lives that 
all of this at, at times can feel overwhelming and exhausting. Like, who wants to keep up with this? But there are some very basic, to use a football analogy, there's some very basic blocking and tackling that hasn't changed fundamentally when it comes to how these things work. And one of them is you as a player have to bring evidence that shows that you are the aggrieved party. And from what I've seen, there is some anecdotal, isolated incidents here and there where certainly maybe, okay, someone who died, you know, their vote got cast some sort of way. But to extrapolate that out to millions of votes, like, I think about it like statistics. To do a, yep. you guys are familiar with this. To do a confidence interval and say you're 98% confident that this voter fraud exists, do you understand how large of a sample size you'd have to pull to be confident that that's true? Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And so I find well, it hard about reconciling he's going to run in 2024, but he's still pursuing a legal strategy for 2020. <laughs> I mean, make it make sense. He's, make sense. He, I'm not going to try and make it make sense, but what I will say is that he's just doing what he does best. He is going to, if he can't win something, He's going, to fi- he's going to fight it, and that's what we're seeing right now. He's a classic bully. He's going to keep beating this until somebody just says, oh, my God, just let him have it. The problem is is that it's an election, and nobody's going to let you have it. Like, you can fight all you want to. You can have all these baseless claims if you want to. The rules are the rules. The law is the law. And in um in speaking of Brian's treating yourself, also treats yourself to I believe it was Georgia. They have some of the transcripts of the federal court when with his uh folks trying to get this recount going before they threw it out. It's hilarious because the it the the judge actually asked them straight up, just like you would say, Dennis, like. So what you're telling me is, is that you want us to count the the votes that are legal. And then the guy's like, right. And he's like, but you don't want to count the votes that are illegal. Right. So how do you know which one is which? Uh, well, I mean, you would have to find, he's like, that, that, that's not what I'm asking. I'm just, I'm just trying to keep, trying to like be one-on-one with you here. What is what? Do you, can you tell me what is what? No. All right, we're done. And that's the point. Like, you have to prove beyond – you do have to bring evidence that shows that this is some sort of widespread conspiracy. I think the other thing, too, which I find interesting is that in some – not all, but in some of these states where we're talking about voter fraud, these elections are being administered by Republican administrations in those states. So are you saying yep. that they're in on the conspiracy? Because it doesn't appear that that's the case. Either. And the biggest example is Georgia, where the two Senate runoffs, uh, the Republicans in the Senate runoffs are accusing uh, – or they want the Secretary of State to step down based on how the election went. And it's like, so you're mad because it didn't go your way? But – but if it did go your way, you'd be okay with it. Like this whole bait and switch. I just think people get to a point where you're like, you can't keep telling me that the thing I saw isn't the thing I saw. No, they're at, what I look at it as is that 
Trump and the people like him, like the Lawflers of the world, have been able to pull you the wool over your eyes for so long that they think that they can just keep doing it. They're going to like, even though you know what you saw, but I've been I've been over here telling you what re- what's really going on. If, you, if I could just get you to look back here, then. You know, you know that you become blind again. Yeah, I get what you're saying, but I saw something the other day and I think there is a grain of truth in it and it was something to the effect of you can only lead people to where they want to be led and I think there is a group of people that want to be led in this direction Um, because again if you've never had to hold an L in your life you know it can be a very subversive negative reaction to holding an L and or it's the opposite, where you've all you've done is lost, and finally you feel like you're a part of a group that wins and will win by any means necessary. Well, well, think about it too. Like when you think about like a gang, for example, just it not leave the connotations aside. But typically, a gang is what you bring people in because it's a sense of belonging, right? So I'm not saying these people are gangs, but in terms of like the quote unquote movement or the MAGA folks or you know, whomever, at the end of the day, it's, it's a sense of belonging. You know, maybe you share some of these same grievances. Maybe these things have happened to you. Scared that socialism is on the horizon. I have no idea. But like at the end of the day, I think a lot of it is just, um, Trump is their guy and you can get into there's a whole other argument to make about how he might be the manifestation of things that had built up over time but be that as it may you know he's the leader and so people are following that okay yeah that that being said and that's a really good point. um and that being said there's been a lot of talk in the news about um reconciliation with Trump voters because you know, over 72 million people voted for for Trump and Biden's calling for unity. And, and there are some people that are pushing back on the idea of unity because today the, they had the MAGA rally in D.C. and then some violence <laughs> um, that appeared to be isolated to me. Um, it, and what I mean by isolated is it wasn't some sort of coordinated attempt to attack people. It just seemed more like. They came to D.C. to support the president and protest. They ended up going through Black Lives Matter Plaza. The people who were at Black Lives Matter Plaza took sort of exception to their presence. And there were some incidents where um, it got violent, where people were throwing firecrackers at one side. You know, they're they're harassing people and putting their and and beating up people on the other side. So, you know, I I don't want to get too far down a rabbit hole, but but I'm curious what you guys think about this idea of Biden calling for the country together and being unified and doing that against um, a backdrop where there are people on the winning side that are not interested in reconciling and there are people on the losing side that are not interested in accepting that Biden is the president. So, Brian, I'll start with you. Tell me in from your perspective, sort of what all what all this means and what do you think is net like what's your take on this? Well, not to get too much into rhetoric, but I think in general for the situation we're in with the climate crisis, a racial crisis, a pandemic, 
and the economy. Like that takes a special type of person to be able to tackle all four of those at the same time. Um, I think that he, and like I said, not, I don't want to be sound like, sound like I'm buying into all the, the commercials and whatnot, but there are very few people who are of, um, who are able to do that. And I think Biden's one of them. Um, with that being said, he is a unifier. He is somebody who probably gets consensus, which is probably something progressives don't like because he kind of meets in the middle. So he'll compromise. Um, I think that in terms of the reuniting of the country, I think that's something that is something that you have to say. Um, and I think generally he is somebody who probably means it. But, um, but I do think that. Um, I will, it will be interesting to see who, how that plays out over time. Um, because, uh, the people who, who, the people who helped him get there, not all of them are interested in that. And, um, I don't want to say there are some dues that have to be paid, if you will, or some, some scores that have to be settled. Um, but I, I think initially for right now, I think it's a good idea. Um, I don't remember in 16, to the contrary, though, I will say I don't remember in 16 people who um, when Trump won and his people were kind of celebrating everything. I don't remember a whole lot of reaching out to the Hillary side or the Democrats either. But I think Democrats also fall into the category sometimes of um, I don't want to say being the adult in the room. But sometimes Democrats will do what's better for the whole in terms of the unity and everything, whereas sometimes the other side doesn't always do that. So, but I'm interested to see how it plays out because um, I think his nature is to be um, be a healer and try to bring people together. But I don't know if the factions that helped him get to where he is in terms of the presidency will allow him to do that. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good point that. It is sort of in his nature to be the centrist and be the traditional um, sort of politician in that vein um, against that. I think an, another interesting dynamic is there's one side and it's largely more vocal on the Republican side where it's about individual freedoms and individual liberty and don't have the government telling you what to do. And and I can certainly get behind some of that conceptually. But I also think it's interesting that now that's the same side that is saying some people, not all, because I don't want to generalize all of them. But some people are saying, well, listen, we need you guys to reach out to us so we can heal and reconcile and do all of that sort of thing. But that individualism that we're talking about is exactly what the winning side is exercising. These are people that are saying, hey, my individual freedom, I should be able to exercise and I have no interest in reconciling. And there's nothing more American than that. And that's how I feel about it. And that's the end of it. And these people should be accepting uh, my individual freedoms and not wanting to reconcile. And then the other side, I've seen people say, well, that's not right, this, that, and the third. And then all of a sudden it goes back in this tit for tat about who did what, when to who. And like that, I think, is gets exhausting. And I think that's why people a lot of times just turn off politics altogether. But I think for people like us, we kind of find that back and forth interesting because there's context and nuance and history sort of built all into it. But I think – 
in 2020, at least what my hope is, is that with COVID being the great equalizer that has exposed racism and income inequality and how important healthcare is and everything else, that I just think that people need to decide you can't die on the proverbial hill in the sense of you want to die on every hill. You're going to have to pick and choose. And I think COVID's really brought into focus about what's really important. And so I just hope people from both sides can sort of dial it back a little bit just so we can get to a place where um, we can get things done. You can believe what you want to believe, but there are some hard realities that have to be dealt with. And um, me personally, I just know I just believe that the, the solution isn't on the extremes far right or far left. The solution's always in the middle. Nobody ever gets everything that they want, but we can get something that'll make this better for a lot of folks. So that's um, my take on it. But Denise, I'm interested from your perspective, this idea of reconciliation with um, the Trump side and whether or not um, that's something that you think we, that people should do or are people well within their right not to do it? Like what, what's your sense of that? Well, first and foremost, um, Biden is saying what he's supposed to say. I mean, I don't see him, if he were to go the individual way, like, you know, our side won and your side lost, I think that would just add fuel to the flame. So he's doing exactly what he's supposed to be doing. But when I look at it from a perspective, from a historical perspective, Joe Biden is a transitional president. He's our, he's a Jimmy Carter. He's a Gerald Ford. Uh, he's a Woodrow Wilson. He's a reset button. Um, and I think out of all of the presidents that have come before him, he's probably the most equipped to handle as many issues as we have at this particular moment than anybody else. But I'm kind of like what you said that you're, you're going to win some and you're going to lose some and not to take it not to make it's not the same thing but the but the uh the compromise is similar in sense of like like eight like Rutherford B. Hayes he wanted presidency but the south wasn't going to let him have it so it was like okay I tell you what the south I'll give you the white house but you have to end con- uh, reconstruction and even though it's not the same as say today but it's still a tit for tat it's a it's a pull and a give. Now, of course, we know so many years later that ending the Reconstruction was terrible for Black America, but it is what it is. History is history. I think that for Biden, it is going to be difficult to bring folks like the extreme Trumpers on um, the secret Trump voter. I could see being persuaded, um, but I don't see though like the folks that were out in the plaza today. I don't see them um, giving up anytime soon. So if I was Biden, I would compromise where I can um and where i can't either 
A, grit your teeth and executive order the shit out of whatever you're trying to do, or let it drop. But either way, the next four years aren't going to be easy for Biden, for sure. And if Trump decides he wants to pull a Grover Cleveland and go in 2024, um, he needs to... He's not going to do this, but he needs to think this through from a from a political perspective. He is in what four hundred million dollars worth of debt, um, and he's already looking into pardoning himself. I doubt that he realizes that just by pardoning yourself at the federal level doesn't protect you from the state. So um, Letitia James is waiting for you when you come out on January twentieth. But um, as just, far as just to be clear, Letitia James is the attorney general for the state of New York. Yes. Yes, she is. Uh, black girl power. Woo-hoo. Um, she gives zero fucks about uh, Donald Trump. And I think, though, when it comes to compromise, you're going to he's just going to do it where he can and where he can't. He's just going to bulldoze his way through or just let the issue drop. So so. With Letitia James being in New York and outside of D.C., um, that brings up a really good point. Um, something I want to explore with you guys is um, this idea of outside influence on the election. Because there's a lot of articles sort of post-mortem going around around what are some of those outside influences that had an impact. Like in the beginning, all the way back a year or more, it was a big fear about Russia was going to interfere in the election because they had done it uh, the last time. And that sort of to subside. And uh, based on the articles that I'm reading, it appears that this is the most secure election that there's ever been, apparently. Because um, I but I do think with 150 million people voting that it's not going to be perfect. But uh, for the most part, it was a secure election. So what sort of influence do you think? outside forces had on the election. And, and specifically, I want to talk about um, Stacey Abrams, um, the Native American movement in the Southwest, um, the Lincoln Project, um, Black Voters Matter. Sort of talk a little bit about whether or not you think these groups had a, either a small or an outsized level influence on the election as a whole. Um, I think that it had a huge, um, effect on the election. And I think all the people, all the groups that you just mentioned, all in some way, shape or form took the mirror out of America's hands and turned it on itself and said, look at what you look like. This is what you've been like for the last four years and in in reality, how you've been for 200 and some odd years. And do you want to continue to be the person that you're looking at? And you see it with Black Lives Matter. You see it with the Me Too movement. Um, With what I think that Stacey Abrams did was she uh, she essentially ripped the bandaid off when it comes to race. And then when you bring when you bring in the events of George Floyd 
and the riots in front of the um right outside the the White House during you know Black Lives Matter Plaza or whatnot. Um the Native American movement, like you said, out here it is huge in Arizona. Um the Navajo Nation is the largest part a part of the Navajo Nation, the largest part of the Navajo Nation is in Arizona. Um so I think that every single one of these particular groups and every single issue that lit the fire under those groups all ripped band-aids off and made took the mirrors and turned it on on itself. Hey America, is this what you want to be? So you do think that these groups had a had a had an influence. Brian, what do you think? Do you think these groups had a had a, a huge influence? Tell, tell me what you think, and then I'll, I'll, I'll share some thoughts. <laughs> all right. Well, I do think that they all had an impact. I think if you were looking at, like, a pie chart, I mean, you could definitely divvy this up a lot of ways. I think that um, – but I also feel like if this was kind of like a um, – how do I put it? Like, if you were doing a uh, – like a football play, right, everybody's got their, their lane. Everybody's got their responsibility. So offensive line has to block, you know. Um, and they have their assignments and a running back has to hit the hole and then like everything like that. So I think that everybody kind of had their part to play. So the Lincoln project is somewhat is a group who's going to talk to Republicans in a vernacular that they understand. Right. Um, Stacey Abrams is going to, uh, by the way, if there's, a, if there's an MVP for this cycle, it might be Stacey Abrams. Um, because she lays the groundwork in Georgia. She loses her, her, uh, not Senate, excuse me, but the governorship, right? So she loses that. But because of the groundwork that she laid, now they're able to come back two years later and they are going to identify those people. And then now we got to get them in a little bit more. And then now because of that, Georgia flips blue, right? She should um, be the next DNC chair. I, I yeah, important to pause here but for a second, uh, Brian, because I think there's a big difference between getting people to register and getting people to the poll. She was able to do yes. both. And that's the only reason mm-hmm. why the state flips and turns blue. It's not enough to register people. You have to actually get them to the polls. And she was able to do that. And I think that's just an important distinction that people need to understand. Yeah. So, but, but I do think that, you know, the work, the legwork that she did in Georgia, um, it was, was helpful. Right. And so, um, and yeah, I've, I've kind of feel like she probably is one of the few people in on the democratic side, um, who probably can just name whatever job she wants and she can just go ahead and do it. And I don't think anybody's going to be mad at it. Um, I would, I mean, if I was picking objectively, I'd probably put her at the DNC because I want her to do what she did in Georgia. I would want her to do that, you know, either nationwide or, or, you know, across the South or whatever. Um, but like Beto did the same thing or something similar, um, when he lost to Ted Cruz and was 18 for the Senate, but he laid some groundwork to, you know, um, make it a little easier in 2020 and Texas a little bit harder to pull just because the population size and everything. Um, but uh, I think a lot of groups did a lot of different things, but I also think too, that this also may have been a situation where this is, 
an all hands on deck type of deal. Like, I think that, yes, people were motivated to come out and vote or maybe they say, see, stuff, you get registered or that, or, you know, insert organization here. But I also think there was a lot of people who were going to vote regardless. And I think that they were going to vote for uh, anyone but Donald Trump. So I think that's an interesting thought because I do think there's an element of I'm not necessarily voting for Biden, but I'm voting against Trump. And I do think there's an element of because there are a number of people who celebrities and the whatnot. And there's probably people in your own personal circles, because I know I have some that reached out to me personally and were like, I have never voted in my life because nothing ever changes, but I voted this time. And they didn't say who they voted for, but in knowing these people and the relationships that I have with them, it was pretty clear who they voted for. And it wasn't necessarily a vote for, but a vote against. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that's important when you're talking about the context of this specific election, because every specific election has um, certain things that are unique and specific to it. And to me, this record number of vote of the number of people who are voting in my mind is people aren't necessarily Biden wasn't people's first choice. This is basically black people in South Carolina saying you guys can be infatuated with Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg and everybody else. But we're going with Joe because we know Joe and Joe's the one we think can beat Trump. And that's what's most important. And everybody fell in line the following day. And so to me, you want to either thank somebody or blame somebody for Joe Biden being president. You need to think you need to thank or you need to blame black voters in South Carolina because he was not winning. He finished fifth in New Hampshire and then yep. came to South Carolina, held the line. And the next day, the whole thing flipped and everybody got out basically. But Bernie, but even Bernie saw the writing on the wall like you just can't compete. And he's got the wind at his back. And so, you know, it just it, it just is what it is. But I do think um, I think these groups do have some impact specifically. I, I kind of want to touch on just real quickly um, the Lincoln Project because there was some back and forth between them and, the, and AOC saying that, well, your impact wasn't as huge as what you think it was. And the Lincoln Project saying, well, just come see the numbers. And she's like, well, if, you, if I see the numbers, I'll apologize, blah, blah, blah. I think those guys were – I'm not going to say they had a huge influence, but what I will say is this. I do think they gave – Trump, uh, Republican voters permission to say it's okay to vote for Biden and you don't have to vote for the dogma of the party because the party that you knew isn't the, isn't that party anymore. So I do think they created a permission structure to allow uh, a certain group of voters to vote for Democrat. And I think they can probably take credit for peeling off a, per- a small percentage of Republican voters and getting them to flip to the other side. I wouldn't accredit them with some massive sort of they turned it by 20 percent type deal. But I do think it's probably reasonable to say if they got three to five percent of traditional Republican voters to vote Democrat in this one election, I do think that that is an outsized influence um, 
in the big scheme of things for people who normally would have never voted Democrat. I do think that that is a um, that had an impact on the election, in, in my opinion. But don't also also don't forget, there's also buyer's remorse. You got those folks that voted in 16 for Trump thinking they were going to get one thing. And then here we are four years later, and they're just like, I made a huge mistake. So I'm glad you brought that up because about four years ago or so, um, a Twitter account came to my attention, and it's called Trump Regrets. And all it is is people who tweet that they regretted voting for Donald Trump, and this account just retweets all of those tweets. And there were so many people. That just felt like if I had any idea it was going to be this, I would have never voted for this man. And you're right. I do think there's a level of buyer's remorse, but not enough to where, you know, 70, 70, 72 million people still voted for him. So it's like not not everybody had that remorse, but I think enough people had remorse. Enough people got permission or found a permission structure that allowed them to vote for Democrats. I think it's that confluence of all of those things come together. And I just think that an election four years from now, the circumstances will be wildly different, that it won't be a rinse and repeat sort of thing. The world, the country won't be in a different place. So, you know, you can't apply what happened in the past to this and you, you or, or to a future election, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, Denise, I think that's a good point. Well, the other thing, too, going back to the Lincoln Project, uh, one of the things they talked about was um, uh, they call it the Bannon line. I don't know if you're if you've heard this or not, but I think um, they basically said I'm probably butchering it, but I'm paraphrasing it. Basically, the Lincoln Project's goal was to get one out of four Republicans to vote for Joe Biden. They can just peel off one. So it's 25%. And then depending on where the math is, it's probably about um, like anywhere. I think their line was like 4%. So like if they can go into four, a state and get 4% of Republicans to switch over to Joe Biden. And I get, and the reason it's called the Bannon line, because I guess Bannon heard it and was like, yeah, that sounds about right. He's like a three to 4% of Republicans left Trump and it's over. So that was their mantra from the beginning. Get three to four. We'll get four percent of Republicans, um, you know, or one out of four, or however the math worked out. And so basically, that was their deal from from the get. And so because of that, they were able to peel some off, like with the permission structure from whether it be like a John Kasich or a you know you know insert name here. Um, as they were able to peel those uh, Republican voters off, then you know. And then also too, the pool that Trump is com- that he's pulling from, um, that's a small pool, and that's a dying breed. So, but hold on, I want you to know those two things together. Is it a dying breed in terms of the pool that Trump's pulling for? Because more people turned out in the counties won. More people turned out to vote for him because the whole talk going into this was. He's got to be able to reach out and change people's minds from the other side because he has already maxed out all the people that are going to vote for him. But that simply wasn't true. He got more people to vote for him who hadn't voted 
before. So the, the, the inverse of what I said earlier is also true. So he kind of made up for that a little bit. But again, I just think it's a. But, but, there, but there's still but there's still a ceiling on that, though. Like he can, yeah, he can get if he maxes out his voters, and maybe he got some people who didn't vote for him in sixteen, or some people who, who sat out, maybe. But to use your Twitter analogy with the handle, if you extrapolate those people who voted for him and then decided, oh man, like there's some remorse or something like that, like there's going to be a ceiling, and um, you know, you know, you take puns, you know, with a grain of salt. But typically, they, um, I've heard it said multiple times that whatever your approval rating is, that's kind of like what your ceiling is. So his, so his approval rating going into the election, I think it was like 42, 43%. So yeah, he never hit 50. That, so, yeah, yeah. So, so you can win that in 2016 when people doing protest votes, but you can't do that in 20 when it's just you and one other person. But I also think, too, there, Dennis brings up a good point as far as he got more people to vote for him this time. Which and is another conversation unto itself. We agree. And I think the point being that the underlying point, I should say, or the not so obvious point is that the people that chose to vote for him that didn't vote last time are just like the opposite of those who didn't vote at all in 16 and then chose to in 20 because of what Trump did, whereas on the opposite end, they're voting because of what Trump is saying. They are afraid of the coming change. They are afraid of the browning of America. They want to keep it the way it is. That's how he got more people to vote for him. He was able to tap into that underlying racism that nobody talks about. That's how he did it. So speaking of sort of the browning of America and changing demographics, um, obviously after Tuesday, we're all watching these votes from an electoral college perspective about what states turn what and getting to 270 and the whole nine. But with the outs, with these outside influences on the election, whether they were big or small or what have you, um, I saw something the other day that I thought was interesting that I want to put in front of you two and get your reaction. And that is this. If these Midwestern states that Joe Biden flipped back but barely won, so we're talking 20, 30,000 votes at the most, right? If those states flip red, which I would say it's a toss up as to whether or not they do or not, but it's a real possibility. But you can replicate Stacey Abrams' Georgia effect in Texas. This is a, then the elections are effectively over because if Texas and California and New York all go Democrat, there really isn't a, a, a scenario in which Republicans can win a presidential election anymore if Texas goes blue. It's not even that. If Texas goes blue and then the one stronghold that you know that they're going to get every single time because they know how important it is from 2000 is Florida. They'll always, you know, like even if they got Florida, then it's for real over with. So, Denise, you, you used to live in California. Yes, and I loved it. So, it was wonderful. Yeah. 
you used to live in California, how many electoral votes does California have? Oh, right. So if uh, if Texas has fifty-five electoral votes, and so no, 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 no. California has fifty-five. Texas has a uh, thirty-six. New York has twenty-nine, and uh, Florida has thirty-nine. If I remember that correctly. Are you are you sure about that? Uh, I know. Let me double check. Electoral college. Texas has thirty eight. So thirty eight. Okay, so I was off by two. Come on. Sorry, but 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 I I, I, anyway. We digress. I think the point (laughs) is that if you were to replicate Stacey Abrams' ground game. And build upon the work that Beto did and flip Texas blue. At that point, the mass starts to work against Republicans in presidential elections. Well, and theoretically, it always has. The only the problem with the Electoral College, when you actually sit there and look at the map, the middle of America is all red. But all of those states aren't worth anything. There are three points here, six points there. So, yeah, Republicans may stack those up, but if you go to the coast, on the west coast and then the northeast, and now that you've got part of the southwest with Arizona and New Mexico, that alone becomes a problem for Republicans. So if you're looking at it, like I'm sitting here looking at the map right now, and by them losing Texas, regardless, it's over with. It, like they would, the, those two states, Texas and Florida, are the two states that have the most electoral votes of the of any other state that is a Republican held state. So if you're going to apply the Stacey Abrams plan to a 50 state strategy, you would just need to focus on those two states. Forget the rest. Like if you if you kept if you kept all of the states that Joe Biden won today or last week and then you put in the Stacey Abrams plan and the in the Beto plan, now you're talking. You're only you only need truly need to focus on two particular states and then of course make sure that the you know the Rust Belt part of the Midwest stays blue, but even then you don't necessarily need Wisconsin, Michigan, or even PA. That's the point that I was trying to get at. So yeah, there's there's more routes for for Democrats. So what I was trying to get at was this: if you were to add up Texas, California, New York, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, that number gets you to one. Uh, you ain't gonna put Ohio in there. You ain't gonna put Ohio in there. They got eighteen. I think Ohio is a Republican state. I know. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, but if you add up <laughs> the, those five states I just gave you, Texas, California, New York, Pennsylvania, and Illinois, that's 162. So at that point, he's 92 away. And when you start picking off the Northeast, you start picking off Oregon and Washington, Colorado mm-hmm. appears to be a blue state. Uh, yep. New Mexico's a blue state. 
if you hold on to Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, I mean, that's the ball game, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the ball game. And so I just think it's one of those things where um, – And honestly, Dennis, as quiet as it's kept, going into election night, they were talking about the possibility of flipping Texas. But when Texas went red and they talked to the Biden campaign, you know what they said? Oh, yeah, Texas would have been a nice to have. Yeah, you know, I get it. They had already run their internal projections in the whole nation. Yeah. I get it. I'm projecting for it. Uh, that, that's all I'm saying. I, I, just based on okay. the that, that I saw, I, I'm not saying they were relying on it because they weren't. I'm saying that's no, no, that, that was said. the point. Yeah, that was what I was. But what I saw was if Democrats flip Texas and turn it blue, that effectively it's game over for Republicans because they can't because Democrats are picking up all of the states with the largest number of electoral votes outside of Florida. Which would be major from a Democratic perspective, considering that there have been more Republican presidents than there have been Democrat. So you would see a complete shift of, yeah. of power within the United States from a, uh, I guess, I don't want to call it a ruling class, but like of the dominant party. Right. Well, perhaps. So one of the things, speaking of uh, ruling party, one of the things I do want to talk about is in Biden's acceptance, not acceptance speech, but in his night, once the 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 race had been called. He's there in Wilmington and he's thanking all these people when he specifically thanks black people saying that you've always had my back and I'll always have yours. So, Brian, I'll start with you. What exactly are you expecting out of a Biden administration relative to how they'll go about trying to improve the lives of black and brown people? Well, I think this is, goes back to my initial um, comment about how he's saying the right things, but at the end of the day, the factions that help to get in there, there's going to be a lot of people who want, there's competing agendas here, right? So, uh, yes, absolutely, you know, certainly as a black man, I could certainly list book, line, and verse historically why you know you would want to you can't fix all the ills of black america but you, there are some things you can do but i also think that there are going to be other groups who have similar beefs that want something and and not saying that people aren't deserving or you should take a look at things but i think sometimes they're you might have a situation where there's just too many mouths to feed. And I'd be interested to see, A, what he does as it pertains to uh, black people in this country or people of color in general, um, and two, how he's going to go about it. Um, but also, I think the one of the bigger things, I think, and Denise, you've mentioned this before, um, if Republicans still hold the Senate, then he's going to have to do it all by executive action because Mitch McConnell's not going to let him do anything. Um, so I'm cautiously optimistic, I guess. Um, because again, I think that Joe Biden has shown to be a decent person at heart. And I think he is certainly well-meaning and well-intentioned, but you know, as we've said in this family many times before, um, 
you know, the road to hell is paved with good intention. So, so you think um, Biden and McConnell have opened up some sort of back channel dialogue as to how exactly I think they probably about getting things done. I, I think they've opened up dialogue. I, I will definitely give you that. I think they've opened up dialogue um, because I think Joe Biden has enough relationships in that Senate to be able to say, okay, Mitch, like, like, I know you have to do this dance to satisfy, you know, Trump's ego, but like, at the end of the day, like, we're still going to have to get some things done here. So like, um, so yeah, I think they back channeled. Um, I think that he's back channeled with other senators, other people in the administration or different parts of the government. So I think those things, um, I think those things have probably already taken place. But again, as it pertains to black people specifically, when, um, legislation or different things have been promoted or uh, promoted or put out there to try to advance um, people of color or try to um, not even make it even, just kind of just bridge the gap a little bit. There's all kinds of resistance, right? So between the resistance the uh, and the Republican Senate, I am somewhat pessimistic as to what he can do, but certainly like I feel like if there's anybody who's going to be able to get something out of Mitch McConnell, it probably would be Joe Biden, just because they have an existing relationship and Biden is a creature of the Senate. So he kind of knows the, uh, he knows the levers and what they do. Like if Donald Trump knew the levers of government and how things really work, like, you know, whether if you're a supporter, you'd say he was doing everything. If you were, on the other side, you'd say it would be he's really making this thing really dangerous, right? But either way, he is not a politician, so therefore he does know, not know how all the levers and police and all the things that you can do in government. Joe Biden does. So that part I'm, I am optimistic on. But again, I'm, I'd be concerned about the people who, um, like remember when, with healthcare, when they told Obama instead of going for it all, you know, maybe you should kind of just inch it together or maybe do like a just like a simple bill or something symbolic or something like that because they were afraid to, you know, put it out there. And so he said, no, we're going for it, you know, whatever. Is Biden going to be like that in the face of not having the votes to do it? And that's a good question, considering that at the time with Obama, it's 60 votes, Democratic votes in the Senate. So that's a good that's a that that obviously won't be the case here. So, Denise, what's your what's your thought on? the Biden administration relative to their ability to deliver on creating um, policy or a better life through executive action, what do you call it? What do you think to do that? Um, well, first and foremost, I'll say in his first hundred days, I don't expect a whole lot. He's got a lot to clean up. Um, he's going to do a lot of executive orders getting back into the Paris Peace Accords and, um, all, you know, the World Health Organization. Like he has that stuff like that to get through. So the first call, 100 days, I'm not expecting a whole lot. As those four years continue though, I, I'm like Brian, like Brian has said, it's going to be mostly executive orders if he cannot get it through the Senate. Um, I don't see Mitch McConnell really compromising 
And I say that because he might know Joe Biden and Joe Biden might know him and he might know the levers of the Senate. That was Mitch McConnell pre-Trump when he didn't have access to so much braggadocious power. Granted, he always had that power. But if you ever look at, think about Mitch McConnell, like, circa, like, 06, and then, like, now. He knew he had power then, but it was, like, an undercover power. Now, it's almost like mad scientist in my mind. So do I think he'll compromise? Sure. Do I think it's going to be at a level that any of us would like? No. As far as race goes, I can see it twofold. He could be an LBJ and attempt another Civil Rights Act or an amendment to the Civil Rights Act of 64. And if he runs into trouble, I can see him being cunning and getting something else passed through. This, uh, through the House and through the Senate under the guise of something else. So, for example, minimum wage. You know, if he's able to push minimum wage through and get it raised to $14, then that also helps black communities and black people who are working those front-end jobs who are making $7.25 an hour or working two or three jobs just to, you know, pay their rent, let alone anything else. So I think if he's going to do it, he's going to do it in two folds. He's either going to try and get it passed through like six, like the uh, Act of 64, or he's going to do a, an undercover where he'll, you know, pass the, um, like I said, the minimum wage. Um if he attacks, say, oh, gosh, what's the other thing that's, like, really, really big at <laughs> the moment? My mind just went blank. But in any case, um, I can see him doing something like that. Um, in the end, if we're going to have any kind of compromise, it's going to be under Biden. I just can't tell you how much that's going to be. because. Mitch McConnell and the rest of the Republicans are so unpredictable because of their alliance with Trump, with the exception of a few people who were never really big on Trump, but just kind of went with it. Um, I'm looking at the Republican side of the Senate as a unpredictable factor. Okay, so with that... Um, that kind of leads me into the last thing I want to get into with you guys tonight, uh, and that is these Georgia Senate races, because these Senate races are going to determine who is able to control the Senate. And so for those that don't know, um, Georgia has two their two Senate seats are up for a, a special election in January. They're called runoffs because in Georgia you have to win 50 percent of the uh, of the eligible voting public in order to avoid a runoff, and none of the candidates reach that. 
So you've got two Democrats and two Republicans that are running for these two seats. And so everybody is going to descend on Georgia in the next, you know, 45, 60 days or what have you, um, relative to this election, this special election. So how do you guys think it's going to go? And give me a sense of what you think will happen if Democrats win both seats. Give me a sense of what you think if Republicans win one seat or both seats, because it's effectively the same thing if they do. So give me a sense of, of what you guys think might happen and what the impact would be. Go for it, Brian. Well, um, I'll be honest. I think that, uh, like we were talking about before, McConnell's not going to let Biden do a whole lot. I mean, like, he's going to even censor who he could bring up for cabinet appointments. Like, he's mm-hmm. he's that... He's that level of petty. And, and me and us have talked about this before. I don't always agree with Republicans on a lot of things. I'm kind of more independent, if you will. Like, But there are some things that – one of the things I can always appreciate them is that they give zero fucks. Like they are going to be who they are. They're going to be out here. They're not going to try. There used to be some sort of like, you know, try to dress it up a little bit. But they're like, yeah, no, we're here and we're not letting you do that vote and we're not letting you do this and we're not letting you do that. And they own it. And that's just who they are. And quite frankly, it, I can appreciate I can appreciate on some level how they just own it. And that's just who they are. They're, they don't even try to hide. Like This is what we're doing. Right. Um, but as it pertains to the Senate races, um, my hope is that they get both of them. Um, history has probably shown, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm just guessing. Um, I don't see, I see maybe one, maybe. Um, but like you said, this everybody's and their moms will live in Georgia, um, from now until, you know, January 6th. And so Biden can't do anything unless those, unless he brings home both of them. And that's a tall, that's a tall ask. Um, because you got the presidential election, but now you're asking people to go back a second time and, and vote. Now, certainly the, they would, they whittled the field a little bit, but even still, that's going to be a tough ask to, to get, to gin up that engine again for, uh, a second time. I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic, but, um, you know, they're going to put a lot of money in there. And I get, I think that's a good point, Brian, because. Traditionally, people do not come out in droves and vote in a special election. It just doesn't happen. People show up in presidential elections because they know they get to choose the president. The off-cycle elections are sort of hit and miss. It just kind of depends um, what people's motivations are. But a special election like this historically is not something that gets people motivated to come out to the polls. So I agree. So it will be interesting to see how people in Georgia – um, how motivated they are to come out and do this a second time. And this is probably a good time to plug for all my Georgia family, go vote. Um, but that being said, Denise, what's your, what's your sense of, of the Georgia special election? I think, well, I don't think, I hope that there, that the black electorate in Georgia are on the same level of pettiness than I am and that they vote 
for um what's the what's the Democrat's name? It's John Ossoff His, and Raphael. There he is. Raphael yeah. Warnock. Oh, you know, <laughs> you know my thing about Raphael Warnock. Is it Ra- is it Raphael or Raphael? I don't know. Depends if he has money or not. Raphael or Raphael? <laughs> He's a preacher of uh, Ebony, Ebenezer Baptist Church. So for those that don't know, that's the yes. same church that MLK preached at. So um, Brian, I'm going to say a man of faith. He's not Raphael. He is Raphael. Mm. Yeah. Either way, um, I feel so bad because sometimes I mispronounce his name and I feel terrible about it. Sorry. Anyways. um. I'm sure he's listening. I know. <laughs> I know. Right. Okay. Um, what I think, as far as the runoffs are concerned, Brian is absolutely right, uh, and so are you, as far as participation is going to drop on special elections. I mean, they always have. They always will. Um, but I would love it if Stacey Abrams can get a big enough coalition to come back out, which I don't doubt that she can. Um, I, I don't see that being a problem for her. And I really, and I think that those who are going to come out and, and vote for Ossip and, um, Warnock is that, um, they've got a few things. They got a couple of chips on their shoulders. They've done, they both have done their opponents or Republican opponents have done things that are, not exactly print worthy or I don't want to say, uh, let's just call it what it is. Racist. Uh, yeah, from, but, you know, from, but, to, but how, who, how many times has that stopped? Like think about the four years of that's the white to... electorate. That's the white electorate. I'm talking about the black electorate. Okay. Uh, you know, the, you know, the secret weapon is down there too. I had heard this the other day. I think Rick Wilson said, said it. There's like, some ungodly amount of black veterans that live in Georgia. Uh huh. There are like, and so now they're trying to get like for I think it's like forty thousand women in the state of Georgia have served in the military, black women. Like, mm-hmm. so now the angle is going to be to come for the black veterans and try to get them to vote blue. I want this election, the special election, to be. A revenge of the South kind of deal where for the longest time, Brian, like you said, the 40, 50, 100 years, whatever, Georgia has been deep South, super Republican, super racist. And yet Atlanta is the fastest growing city in America for all races, not to mention it is also one of the largest cities with an Afri- African-American population that can make a huge difference. Like it's the Philly of the South. And you know, it's funny not to cut you off, but because I want you to continue your thought. But I will tell you in my travels and in my life and across this country, I can honestly tell you that every time I go to Atlanta, two things happen within me is a Atlanta is good for my soul. And two, Atlanta's one of the safest places I've ever been. Like, I feel like I'm safe. Like, I don't have to look over my shoulder and question 
as a black man, whether or not I'm going to be questioned or stopped or pulled over, I can just go live my life in peace. And Atlanta is unique that way and a way yeah. other places aren't. But please continue your thought. Yeah, I want I want blacks in Georgia and in, in Atlanta to, like, raise the spirit of William Tecumseh Sherman and just plow through this this runoff and reclaim Atlanta. That's just that's just my own personal want. I think that Stacey Abrams can get enough people to come out. Um I the question here is how the amount of money that's going to be pouring into Georgia for this special election is going to be astronomical. What I'm oh, afraid sure. of, yeah, you know, what I'm afraid of is what we, what could happen, like what happened here in Phoenix, where towards the end, the ads got so bad to the point where people were literally turning off their TVs because they could not stand every 30 seconds another political ad, another one, another one, another one, another one. And, and it started to turn people off. Just to be clear, are you talking about the volume of these? Um, the sheer volume. Or, or the content of the, the ad itself. A mix of both, but particularly just the number of them. Out here, on a regular, say, 45-second uh, commercial break, you would see, I would see anywhere between three, I would say between two and three ads, right? And all of them may be all Republican. And then in the next set, it'll be all Democrat. And in the other set, it will be Democrat to Republican. And it's like, there's nothing in between. You know, the usual stuff that we, you know, I, for once I wanted to see a Sprite commercial, like, out here, it's just all that played because of, of all the money that was just being funneled into Arizona because of how important Arizona was. I'm afraid that they're going to end up doing that kind of a strategy in Georgia, and it's going to turn people off. Gotcha. Okay. Well, well I mean, we'll see. Well, first of all, it, it, it's just a side note. Uh, didn't you talk about Georgia? I heard the other day something to the effect because Sonny – or not Sonny Purdue, or David Purdue or whoever the guy is – that's running against Ossoff. At some point, he was governor, right? And so when he was governor, like the state of Georgia's population was like 70% white. Like now it's like 53 or 57%. So, yeah, like, so it's changed. And so there's, I've also heard a theory too of, um, the South potentially could be quote unquote coming back around because it's basically the vision of the new South, right? So yes. a lot, a lot where people, from the South have gone, they grew up there, they left to go get education somewhere, and then they came back. Right. And then also, right. in addition to that, companies are, some companies are, were slow to go into the South and invest because of obviously there's a stigma that's going to it. But now, like most things, people see the benefits of the money. So now, um, some of these cities in the South, they're become these large sprawling areas, right? So yeah. because of that, between industry and a, a larger education base in terms of people who are there, um, you're going to be able to get a lot more of the vote, which in turn could then flip these things blue. Now, these are all things that have to, that take, have to take place over a period of time. Nothing's going to be solved by right. January 5th. But if you're a Democrat, you have to be somewhat optimistic about it. 
But then, on, but conversely, if you're Republicans, you have to feel good about the Midwest because that's more your demographic. But that's a smaller demographic that's that's shrinking over time. And I, right. And I think that um, you 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 brought up something that I think we'll have to talk about in an, in another episode, which is the cost of racism, because. In my mind, racism is in some ways a tax on capitalism. We could all be getting money if we just eliminated racism to the tune of if you eliminated racism, there are studies that show you could pump five trillion dollars into the economy. So effectively, it's a tax on capitalism. So to me, the biggest way and motivation to get Republicans to move off of policies that have negative impacts on black and brown people is to tell them that you could pump so much money back into the economy. We all want to get money. We all want to win. You know what I'm saying? This is why America will never be socialist in my mind, regardless of how many people try to push it in that direction, because everybody loves money too much, just like everybody loves guns. That's what the reason why everybody's got that's why people defend the Second Amendment, Democrats and Republicans, because everybody loves guns. But that's a whole nother story for another day. So um, so in closing, I want to ask you guys one more question before we get out of here. And I want to thank you both for your time because this has been really, really good conversation and it's been really enlightening. And I know that I've learned something from the both of you every time we have conversations like this. So I'm happy to be able to share it with other people. Um, so my last question to the both of you is, and this is a serious question, um, how concerned are you about Joe Burrow beating your Steelers tomorrow? I'm not concerned. What kind? Of, what? What? Okay. You know what? You know what? I'm gonna tell. I'm gonna tell you the same thing that another Steelers player, or another Steelers fan, tweeted out at a, a a Cincinnati fan who had a picture of someone like wiping their cleats with the terrible towel. He literally. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. And you know what he said? You guys keep doing that, but you still haven't won a playoff game in a very long time. So I'm not really worried. Okay. The, Joe Burrow against that defense, I am I am not worried at all. In fact, he should be the one who's scared because T.J. Watt – and Bud Dupree are coming for you. Listen, 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 listen. I know you are very fired up and making a lot of noise right now. Um, but I don't yeah, think, Brian, geez. I, I, don't, I don't expect uh, the Bengals to win tomorrow either. But I will say, if I was a Bengals fan, um, Joe Burrow is sent from above, and I'd be overwhelmingly excited <laughs> about, um, about Joe Burrow and the possibility. But um, I just thought I hey. would. Um, Hey, my best friend, my best friend, you know her, Nicole, is a huge Bengals fan. This is the only time during the year where we're not friends. We will talk shit to each other the entire game. Well, you have people in your family who are Bengals fans as well, so. Um, <laughs> oh, be, so sad. Yeah, be, well, you'll, you'll, you'll just have to talk to them about that. But so Wait till I get back to Ohio. Yeah, exactly. So, Brian, I appreciate um, your response to the question. It tells me your level of confidence in your team tomorrow. Well, listen. Well, listen. Oh, for the record, for the record, let the record show that 
Yes, they're the only undefeated team, and they have seven first-round picks on that defense. Mm-hmm. So your defense should be nasty, and they should be good. But I can also tell you as a Steelers fan, they tend to lose games that they shouldn't. That so, is true. Case in point, <laughs> case in point, last weekend, they are far superior to Dallas. And it came down to, you know, basically the last – you know, series for Dallas, not Dallas being Dallas and being incompetent. Yeah, I kind of feel like that was my fault. But if Dak plays that game, let's leave that aside, Denise, that's not true. If if Dak Dak plays that game, you're probably right. They probably lose that game. I mean, they lose that game if Dak plays. They're they're playing with a four-string quarterback, and they had more than a puncher's chance to win that game. So so I I agree. And you never know if they're feeling the pressure of – of uh, being undefeated because, you know, all of a sudden, as you start tacking those wins on, all of a sudden the pressure becomes great. So, yeah. So you just never know. And listen, Cincinnati is a feisty team. Like, you can't go to sleep. They beat Tennessee. Like, this is not. They did. You know what I mean? And it wasn't close. Like, like they really did. So, you know, you, you guys. Just dumbfounded. You guys are just, you guys have it, you know, in for you guys tomorrow. So I just wanted to. Well, I mean, they activated Big Ben this afternoon. Yeah, but I, I, you know, here's the thing. I do think that uh, it'll be tighter than it should be, for sure. Are you saying you think it'll be closer than the experts think? Probably. <laughs> it'll be closer than the experts think. I 100% for sure uh, agree with that. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, don't know I do think. Um, I, I, I think they're, I think it's like three or four. So it's not, um, it's, it's not big. I mean, plus, like I said, they are, um, like, I, I just, I don't know. Joe Burrow, to, to his credit, um, Joe Burrow's the truth. Okay. And we're Ohio guys here, so we can, we can pop our chest a little bit, but Joe Burrow's the truth. And, if they can figure out a way to protect him, he's going to be a thorn in our ass for a long time. I'm more scared about him than I ever am Baker Mayfield. But that's a different discussion for a different day. Um, but, I mean, I is think, he Lamar Jackson status? I think I think the Steelers win tomorrow. I think it's closer than what it should be because that's just what they do. Um, but I do think they win tomorrow. I think Stairway to seven, baby. I'll say this. If Joe Burrow played for the Browns, I, I with the with the level of talent on the Browns, I might take the Browns against any team in the league if they had Joe Burrow. Yes, like like I I I, I mean that sincerely, and I think Baker Mayfield can be a good quarterback, but um, I just think he's got to play a little bit within himself and not necessarily do too much. Um, similar to but the progressive commercials are great. There's too many of them, but I just, I just think, <laughs> I, I just, I, I just look at him like Kirk Cousins. Like if you, if I ask him not to do too much, he's effective. If I get, if I, if I start asking him to do too much, um, it's, it's kind of questionable. So, but I just wanted to ask you guys that question and sort of end on a light note because I know that um, the election is kind of, kind of heavy, and I know a lot of people feel a lot of different ways about it on both sides. So, um, so with that, any closing last thoughts from, from you guys before we wrap up? Uh, finding out that Robert Downey Jr. is a Steelers fan really warms my heart. Is he a fan or is he just a, a cool because he got the jersey? 
Like, I think that. Does it matter? It doesn't matter to um, me. It doesn't well, matter. The other, here's what I would say. Um, and this is probably not a, a closing, like a positive thing, but just, um, I think, well, certainly being a resident of Ohio, uh, I do think that DeWine's probably going to shut this down. So it'll be interesting to see, like, in the same way that, in the same way that, you're asking the folks of Arizona, that, or not Arizona, excuse me, of, of uh, I was thinking Atlanta, so but you're asking the people of Georgia to come back a second time, right? That's a heavy pull. That's that's a tough ask, right? I think psychologically, whether it be Ohio or any other place, to ask people to shelter in place again for a second time, that might be a whole podcast unto itself. But I think mm-hmm. that's a that's going to be an interesting um, tug of war, if you will. So. That would be something that I think is uh, interesting. But um, other than that, happy holidays. <laughs> so thank you, for the, thank, you, thank you for the PSA. And, uh, right. Uh, wear, wear a mask, everybody. So on that note, I want to thank uh, my brother and sister, Brian and Denise, for coming on the very first episode of the TTE podcast. Um, it was great to have you guys, and I'm sure I'll, I'll have you guys back uh, here in the future. So thanks for listening. I hope so. Uh,